from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? It's a bit weird here, alone in the engineer's seat at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Four other empty microphones perfectly positioned for the phantom guests and hosts that are instead attending remotely. In uncharted pandemic times like these, everything we thought we knew about our society and our laws can be upended by these new stresses, new doubts, new loud claims made by sometimes the ill-informed. Today with COVID-19, we find that even our most basic understanding of our rights and obligations as American citizens may seem violated as we try to handle the pressures of this bizarre coronavirus. That's why we've decided to do this series on the law, the Constitution, and our challenges in a pandemic time. Welcome to Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. What a panel. Firstly, our co-host, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, worldwide lecturer, and widely quoted, socially distant, and zoomed-in authority of everything historical and constitutional, Professor Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? It's fine. I'm so delighted today to be talking with Irwin. For my money, he's got the quickest mind in American constitutional law. I just wish he was on the Supreme Court. And also zooming in, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who represented U.S. interests all over the world. She's worked with high-level government officials in many countries on major international trade disputes. And she's been involved with several presidential campaigns. Hi, Jane. Nice to remotely see you. Hi, Bill. It's nice to be here. Our special guest today is considered the ultimate authority on law and the Constitution. You got to know him all the way back when he was the voice of legal reason during the OJ trials. Erwin Chemerinsky earned his law degree from Harvard. He held numerous prestigious positions, culminating as dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. He is probably the most recognizable expert in constitutional law, federal practice, civil rights, and civil liberties. He has authored 11 books, including The Case Against the Supreme Court and We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. He's been quoted and published, well, everywhere. Dean Chemerinsky, it's an honor to have you join us on Meet Me in the Middle. It's my honor to be with you. Thank you so much for the kind words and kind introduction. Allow me to remind our listeners about the language in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, even in a pandemic. Okay, I added that part. Ed, I'd like to discuss how this all relates to what we're going through today. That amendment is quite a mouthful. Probably should have been four amendments, but they were all crammed into one. Free to practice religion, free speech, free press, and the right to assemble and criticize the government. How and why did our forefathers jam so much into one amendment? What were they thinking? And it wasn't even originally offered as the First Amendment. It was offered as the third. Uh, But it was the first one that passed and therefore became first. Uh, James Madison sort of gathered together what I believe to be the most important issues that arose out of the revolutionary era. What they cared about was the ability to assemble together, to have freedom of religion, to have freedom of speech, to have freedom of the press. Those were the building blocks 
of the American Revolution because every one of them was being infringed by the King of England and Parliament from afar and the royal governors. And so in one amendment, he pulled all those together. If you look at the other amendments, sure, they're important. They deal with other issues. But these are the core issues to found a republic. They didn't spend a lot of time defining each right, though. If you really look at the entire Constitution, it doesn't spend a lot of time defining anything. It doesn't spend a lot of time defining executive power or the extent of congressional power when you have things like the necessary and proper clause. There's a lot of openness in the Constitution, and that was, in many ways, the framers' intent. You can go back to the very beginning of protests against the Stamp Act and the uh, Quebec Act and the other restrictions imposed, and then the royal governors keeping people from assembling and limiting the press. You look at what they cared about. They didn't want the national government to limit those in any functional way. Erwin, can I just ask you, is it assumed that these rights are absolute under any circumstances, or is it assumed perhaps that during wartime or as we are now in a pandemic, these rights could be abraded in some way? These rights are not absolute. I know the First Amendment uses the words no law, but never has the Supreme Court interpreted no law to be an absolute prohibition of government regulation. And so in Schenck versus United States in 1919, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said that there's no right to falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. The court there said that the government can restrict speech if there is a clear and present danger. Similarly, with regard to free exercise of religion, it's not an absolute right. There's no right to inflict great injury on others in the name of one's religion. Here we are in a, in a new time, certainly Erwin, I think you would have been working hard to defend and support the First Amendment for your whole career. But here we are in a situation where it's arguable that government is trying to help solve a very difficult situation that we didn't plan for in this pandemic. But there are those who are now leaning on free speech and freedom of assembly. And I'd like to know what your opinion is during this remarkable period we're going through whether the First Amendment will prevail for the folks that are uh, against the lockdowns, or is this just noise that we can ignore? I think there's a very important distinction between the ability of the government to regulate assembly to stop the spread of communicable disease and the ability of the government to regulate the content of messages. I think the government constitutionally can stop people from physically assembling so as to stop the spread of communicable disease. I think Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905 tells us that the government can restrict liberty to stop the spread of communicable disease if there's a real and substantial relationship to public health. And I think from what we know now about COVID-19, that it would be justified for the government to say that people can't come closer to six feet to one another, even if it's the name of protest. But the government cannot in the name of fighting COVID-19, control the content of what people say. So if people want to say that the Trump administration is wrong, that can't be punished. If people want to say that COVID-19 is an exaggerated threat, that's their right to say it. It's the content of speech that can't be restricted. So I think there's a very important distinction there that needs to be drawn in terms of the pandemic and free speech. Okay, Ed? 
I certainly agree with him that you can't go to the content of the speech. I also say you can't just cite this danger without showing it. The government has a duty to show that there really is a public health need for uh, limiting assembly. And that's going to be a test because they're going to say, well, is it really necessary or are you just using that to sh shut people down or keep people from going to church? Wouldn't the government possibly be required to allow assembly at churches as long as they met the six feet distance requirement and other safety requirements? To start with, if the law is written generally saying there can be no assemblies of more than, say, 10 people, religion cannot get an exception from a general law under current constitutional doctrine. Now, Ed is absolutely right. I think the test under Jacobson is that the government can interfere with liberties to stop the spread of communicable disease if there's a real and substantial relationship to protecting public health. And the question for the court in any instance would be, is there a real and substantial relationship? So in terms of prohibiting assembly on the capital steps, is it that they could stop all assembly or would it be necessary to say, no assemblies where people stand closer than six feet to one another. It's an interesting question that Jacobson doesn't answer. Is there a requirement for the government to use the least restrictive alternative in this circumstance? And we don't know the answer to that question here. I think what's really interesting that's been brought up is that there is a line with respect to certain civil liberties that where the government is required to take the least restrictive means. It's an interesting concept as to whether they should apply it Jane, you just said something that is, is very new for me. You said the government is required to use the least restrictive means. I'm recalling that there are some civil liberties where they're required to use the least restrictive means. And Erwin, you would know more about this than me. When you're dealing with a fundamental right, the government can interfere only if it is a compelling interest and only if its action is necessary, the least restrictive alternative or race discrimination. The government has to show a compelling interest if it's going to decide something based on race, and that there's no less restrictive alternative. I think the interesting question will be, if there's a challenge to, say, restrictions on assembly, is it that the government still has to meet the least restrictive alternative test, or is it much more of a reasonable test? The language of Jacobson is a real and substantial relationship to stopping the spread of communicable disease. We don't know. As Ed pointed out, Jacobson was 1905 and involved with the Massachusetts could require vaccination of smallpox. In a pandemic, in any national emergency, I think there will be a tendency by the courts to be deferential to the government. If they are convinced that the government is sincerely trying to advance this public health emergency, I think there'll be a tendency to be deferential with respect to how the executive or legislative is defining what is the least restrictive means. If they think, no, I believe this particular governor or this particular mayor is trying to shut down this particular protest, then they're going to raise up and, and appeal to this least restrictive means test. Clearly, if people gather, if they go to restaurants or concerts or what have you, there are going to be people that are going to get sick and there are going to be people that are going to die. If you want to put this burden on the government to use the least restrictive means, shouldn't the government then just be recommending that people stay home rather than create laws that prevent people from going out? No, 
the notion of freedom is that my liberty ends at somebody else's rights. My ability to swing my arm ends at somebody else's nose. If people widely spread the communicable disease, even if they're infecting those who are willing to be infected, there's still an enormous effect on all of the rest of us. It will then overrun the hospitals and threaten crashing the medical care system. Um, so I think here it's exactly what Ed says. Courts are going to be very deferential to allowing the government to restrict movement, to quarantine people, to order shelter in place, as long as the government's acting reasonably. Even this Supreme Court, Irwin? Yeah. You know, what we've seen through history is a great deal of judicial deference to the government in times of crisis. I think there's been too much deference in the past. I'd point to the Korematsu case in 1944, where the Supreme Court, I think in a tragic decision, upheld the evacuation of Japanese Americans from the West Coast during World War II, but it was about deferring to the government. This isn't unlimited. The courts are going to have to make sure that there really is a relationship to public health. But I think when it comes right now to orders to quarantine, to shelter in place, if there are challenges to those orders on civil liberty grounds, the government will win. I think we're all in violent agreement that the government is well-intentioned and has the people's best interest at heart when it's putting this lockdown into place to save us from this, this weird virus. Do you have any messages for the protesters who would like to see otherwise? I think they should express their views. I think that the First Amendment gives them the right to say what they want, and they should look for ways to do that. And there's certainly plenty of opportunity over social media and the Internet to get out their viewpoint. Well, for, for the sake of this program, Erwin, I'm going to take the other side of that argument for a couple of minutes and see if I can challenge some of the free speech concepts that you have so eloquently defended for many, many years. So, you know, lies, damn lies, and in pandemic times, statement that risk people's lives. Why do we feel the need to protect all speech? And doesn't everything have a line that's too far? Of course, we're not protecting all speech. Said earlier, free speech is not an absolute. Why? Some of it is that we protect opinion. And there's no such thing as a false opinion. And the the commentators on Fox News have the right to express their opinion that coronavirus is overblown as a threat. They can express that opinion. And under the First Amendment, all opinions are protected. But also, the Supreme Court has said, I think quite rightly, that even as to factual information in many contexts, there's a First Amendment protection for false information. Not always. There's no right to lie under oath in court. Also, False and deceptive advertising can be punished. But in New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964, the Supreme Court said, if free speech is going to have the breathing space that it needs in order to survive, we need some protection for false speech. Let me give you an example, a Supreme Court case from less than a decade ago, United States versus Alvarez. Congress passed a law that made it a federal crime for a person to falsely claim to receive military honors or decorations. And the Supreme Court Six to three declared that unconstitutional. Justice Kennedy wrote the lead opinion and said, if we're going to have robust speech, there has to be protection of false speech too. And that includes the commentators on Fox News 
falsely minimizing the threat of coronavirus. How about our government officials, even the chief executive, coming up with concepts that so confuse, that create whiplash, and result in people getting sick and feeling like this is perhaps not as serious a virus as it turns out to be? The simple answer is a president cannot be sued for anything that he or she does in office. Nixon versus Fitzgerald in 1982 said a president has absolute immunity of civil suits. So we can't sue the president anyway. But second, the assumption of the First Amendment is that the best remedy for the speech that we think is false or don't like is more speech. If the president touts an anti-malaria drug as a cure for coronavirus, then people should respond and explain why it's not safe and effective as a drug against coronavirus. But ultimately, under the First Amendment, the faith is that the best remedy for bad speech is more speech. And I guess I'm going to have to ask you a couple of whys in this case, because I understand the theory that it's absolute free speech. It's not absolute free speech. And the why in answer to your question is that we believe we're better off letting all ideas and opinions be expressed than we are to let the government choose which ideas and views can be expressed. Erwin, I agree with you about the principles behind the First Amendment. But as you mentioned, the First Amendment is not absolute, and you can have laws against false advertising. A lot of this misinformation and disinformation goes on through political advertising on television or social media, Facebook and the like. Is there any reason why you couldn't have a law against false political advertising? The difference from commercial speech to political speech, when it comes to commercial advertising, There's a profit motive to engage in it so it's less likely to be chilled. I think there's a worry when it comes to political speech that if we let the government determine what's true and what's false, we really are going to chill much more speech. You know, we can verify whether or not Wonder Bread builds strong bodies in 12 ways or the Listerine kills cold germs. But when candidates express political views, I don't want somebody else to say you can and can't say those things. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to lean out my window and protest the protesters. We'll be right back. It will be okay. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Erwin Chemerinsky, Jane Albrecht, and of course, Ed Larson. I'm going to give you a just a hypothetical, if you don't mind. Let's say, oh, that there was a stimulus package that was voted in, signed by the president, and Congress agreed to, I don't know, let's pick a number, $2 trillion of CARES stimulus. And one of the things that they said about this money that both the House and the Senate had signed is that they wanted to have congressional oversight of how it was distributed. And the president, this is just hypothetical, mind you, said in return, no, I'm not going to have anybody oversee how we distributed this money. And that president, let's just say, hypothetically, he ignores Congress. Tell me about how that flows through from there. I think Congress has the power if it wants to exercise it. 
Congress has the spending power, the power of the purse. And if Congress wants to say, we'll give this money to be spent, but we want these forms of accountability and checks and balances, Congress can do that. And I very much disagree with the president when he says that once it's there, any congressional created oversight violates his powers as president. I think the real issues with regard to Congress versus the president occur when Congress hasn't acted and the president fills the vacuum and what can the president do? But once Congress has acted and it's using a power that's specified in the Constitution, like the spending power, then Congress gets to say how the money is going to be spent. Now, Irwin, I agree with you completely, but I'm worried that this Supreme Court would duck the issue by saying that's a political question. Is that a theory you have? It is. I mean, of course, just last year, the Supreme Court said challenges to partisan gerrymandering are political questions. The courts wouldn't adjudicate it. But the difficulty here is Congress has spoken and said, we're going to appropriate this enormous amount of money, but we want oversight of how it's spent. And the president says, I don't want any oversight. I'm not going to do those kinds of things that you specified. I think if you give any meaning to the power of the purse, it has to be that Congress gets to determine the conditions for the spending of federal money. But there is a theory of executive power that's much broader than that. And the court could follow that theory, either explicitly or just by dismissing the case saying, oh, this is left of the political branches to work out. So getting back to our hypothetical, if there were a Supreme Court that was stacked such that chances are Congress's right to oversee how money was spent in this case wouldn't hold up at the court. Does Congress have any other weapons in that regard? Congress, of course, can do many things relative to the executive. It can refuse to spend money. It can refuse to approve executive appointments. They could hypothetically impeach a president, if we're going to go through hypotheticals. Um, The most famous Supreme Court opinion about separation of powers came from Robert Jackson, Youngstown Sheet and Two versus Sawyer, where the court said that President Truman couldn't seize the steel mill. And Justice Jackson said, you need to think of three situations where a president acts. One is where the president is acting pursuant to congressional law. Then the president's power is at the height. One is where the president is acting where Congress has been silent. But the final is where the president is acting in violation of a congressional statute. And there the president's powers are at the lowest ebb. And here Congress has spoken, and for good reason, wanted to make sure that this money is spent for its intended purpose. Moving ahead with, oh, some more hypotheticals. It, it is Congress's right to spend the money, right, that is in their purview. So would it be possible, let's say, for a chief executive to decide to defund the World Health Organization? When Richard Nixon was president, he claimed a power, which he called to impound federal funds. And that's even though Congress had passed a law signed by the president to spend the money, Nixon said, I don't have to do that. And Congress passed a law in 1974 called the Impoundment Control Act that says, where a federal statute calls for the authorization, appropriates the money, the president has to spend that money. When I read about the president defunding the World Health Organization, I immediately thought, isn't that impounding funds? Doesn't that violate the federal statute? 
So let, let's switch over. If people who have had COVID-19 testing are shown to have recovered from COVID and they're given more freedom than someone else who has not, and let's say that if you've recovered, you're wearing, I don't know, a wristband or armband or, or purple hat, is that constitutional? The easy answer is no one knows. We haven't been in this situation. Always want to answer questions on the basis of the law that's been developed. There isn't law here. If it could be shown that people who had COVID-19 recovered had antibodies so that they cannot be infected or infect others, and therefore we treat them differently than those who don't have those antibodies, I think that probably be allowed. But again, so much is going to depend on how it's done and how it comes to the courts. Let's separate a little bit from the Constitution directly, but when you're a business, you're not allowed to ask someone how old they are, if they're pregnant, their sexual preference. But now let's talk about requiring testing for coronavirus to work, to dine, to gather. Is that a civil liberties issue, and can an employer insist on testing? It's a civil liberties issue. It's especially an issue under the Americans with Disabilities Act. But the question is, if an employer would hire only those who had antibodies for COVID-19 and wouldn't hire those without antibodies, might that be seen as a form of disability discrimination? No one can know the answer to that question at this point in time, but I can sort of imagine it happening and being litigated. What if it's the post office? And then you'd have an equal protection issue. If a government employer says, we will employ those who have the antibodies for COVID-19, we won't employ those who don't have the antibodies, then it's going to be a question of, is that a denial of equal protection? What if it's a question of they got a vaccine and someone doesn't want to take the vaccine? But that means, interesting, there are so many cases about vaccination that are clear that the government can require that people be vaccinated no matter what their religious objection or conscience objection. Many states have adopted laws with regard to vaccination that don't have exceptions with regard to religion or conscience. And all of those laws have been upheld. So I think if there's a vaccine, and I look forward to it being there for COVID-19, and the government wants to require it, I think the government will win those cases. But how is that different than the drug testing that's required by a lot of companies? Even though it's not someone who's a driver where there's a connection between their job performance and inebriation. Well, the courts have generally been willing to uphold drug testing, but not always. Georgia had a law that said that anyone who wants to run for public office has to pass a drug test. And the Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. So it's not an unlimited power of the government to impose or private employers to impose drug tests. So let's say I have a company and I'm looking to hire an executive and I'm not allowed to discriminate but if I chose not to hire someone who was, let's say, 50 years old plus, unless they had already gotten through COVID, so I wanted to have them tested, I wanted to know if they had antibodies, are you going to say that in this case, uh, that's okay? I think that issue is going to come to the courts and be a very difficult issue. And remember, the laws that prohibit disability discrimination are not absolute. What they say is that employers have to make reasonable accommodations for people with disabilities. And the question here would be, is this a reasonable accommodation? Imagine a store that has regular contact with people. 
and the store says, we don't want to be part of spreading communicable disease, so we're going to only hire those who have the antibodies so they can't spread the communicable disease. My instinct is the store is likely to win that, but of course it's going to have to be litigated. So, Erwin, is the Supreme Court going to be functional during this time? Or are we going to have a terrible backlog? Are they going to get through some of these pivotal cases that are coming up? They took about half the cases that are going to be were supposed to be argued in March and April, and they're going to have them in May. They took the other half of the cases and put them over to next fall. I doubt they will finish all their decisions by the end of June, which is their tradition but it's just tradition. Um, If you add up all the cases argued this year, there'll be 54 decisions, the fewest number since the 1860s. But I'll tell you this term, they have major blockbuster rulings involving abortion, gay and lesbian rights, DACA, free exercise of religion, presidential immunity from subpoenas, the second amendment. So there may not be quantity of cases, but there sure is quality in terms of the importance of the issues. Okay, well, as we bring this to a close, what are some examples of how the Constitution fails to be a guide during this pandemic? My answer would be that often in American history, at the most important times, the Supreme Court has failed. So I would mention, say, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, with the court upheld separate but equal or Korematsu versus the United States, where the court upheld the Japanese evacuation in World War II, or Dennis, where the Supreme Court allowed people to be punished for speech in the McCarthy era. And so I think the hope is that in a crisis, the court might do better now than it's done before. But the Constitution isn't written with specificity to talk about pandemics. This was at point at the beginning, that the Constitution was meant to be written in a way to last for a long time to come. So it has to be in general language. The question isn't, will the Constitution fail us? The question is, will the courts fail us? Well, on that note, Erwin Chemerinsky, Jane Ulbricht, and Professor Ed Larson, clearly, as we go forward dealing with this pandemic, there are going to be sand traps and water hazards and hills and valleys, and it's going to be a tough shot from any direction. I hope you'll all come back and talk to us about how you think we're handling this remarkable game. And yet in this situation, the golf courses are closed. There you go. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and doing it with all of you. It was just a joy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us here on Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. We'll see you again next time. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Kirko Media. Media for your mind.